Hey, it's Ben here. Just want to let you know before we begin that this episode contains depictions of sexual violence. I'm a long-time woman And I feel no pain I'm a long-time woman And I lost my game. Pam Greer does not sound like she's 73 years old. She's sitting across from me in a hotel in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I mean, you sound like somebody who sings every day. I do. Pam first sang that song in the early 1970s. I'm a long-time woman. Just months before she became famous as an action hero in the movies Coffee and Foxy Brown. By the end of the decade, while little boys were playing Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, young black girls were playing Pam Greer, beating up pretend bad guys. Pam mattered to the culture in a way not many movie stars can claim. For 75 years, black audiences rarely saw themselves on screen. Pam was the face of an era that changed that. But then, she all but disappeared. Two decades later, she showed up in one of my favorite movies of all time, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. How you doing, Miss Jackie? If I tell on you, I walk. If I don't, I'll go to jail. Uh I wanted to understand what happened to her. Preparation for this, it bothered me. We were about to spend three days together talking about her life. I have to get it out so I don't have that moment here. So let me ask you this. It sounds like you talk about preparation and preparation for this. Are you afraid in this conversation of getting emotional? No, I'm not afraid. Mm -mm. You're here for my sincerity. You know, you're here for... My composure, my, you know, if I let it go, we're not going to get through this. And I want to. Pam Greer is ready to talk about her relationships with famous men, about being a black woman in Hollywood and a black woman in America. So get ready, because here comes Pam. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to Season 4 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. Each season, we bring you an in-depth story about the movies and the people who make them. This season, Pam Greer and how she rose to become the queen of blaxploitation films and Hollywood's first female action hero. Have no fear. Pam Greer is here. She was just this total badass on film. That moment in Foxy Brown when she touches the back of her afro and pulls a pistol out from her hair. Death is too easy for you, bitch. Guys and gals were going crazy over her. And she tore the movie industry up. I told you I ain't mad at you. She used her body as a weapon. She did her own stunts. She didn't mind nudity. She was a powerful force on the screen, even when she wasn't saying anything. Pam Greer did not plan on becoming a star. She didn't grow up with money or connections. 
and she'd never acted before. But in the early 1970s, when Pam was just 24 years old, she became a box office sensation in a genre known as blaxploitation films. He's super hood, super high, super fly. These were action movies that studios made on the cheap. The casts were nearly entirely black, which was unheard of. It had only happened a couple of times in the history of the movies. Fred Williamson, he may never get to heaven, but he's raising hell up in Harlem. And because these films used violence and sex, music and fashion, and because black characters were always driving the action, audiences loved them. Some people were just so thrilled, especially young black audiences, young black male audiences. Shaft, hotter than bond, cooler than bullet. It proved to Hollywood that black audiences go to the movies and that black films make money. But from the moment they arrived in theaters in 1971, black exploitation movies were controversial. Critics felt they leaned into, even glamorized, negative stereotypes. Black exploitation dealt with certain caricatures of black people, the way that white people saw black people. Chucky's dead. Now I'm coming to get your hunky ass. There is vulgarity in the film, which a lot of people didn't particularly like. Pam became famous in the 70s when Hollywood went wild. I couldn't walk on the street. It'd be 5,000 people. She fell in love with some of the most extraordinary men of the decade. The biggest basketball star in the world and the most famous comedian in the country. I didn't have a level of trust. It was broken. I was so hoping he would say, yes, I'll take care of you. And he chose not to. But things changed as the 70s came to an end. Pam's career was in shambles. She either left Hollywood or Hollywood left her. I wanted to know which of these was true. And I wanted to know why. So I talked to her friends and colleagues. And most importantly, I talked to Pam. This is real. This is the truth. And this is all I have left. We started at the beginning in an area of the country where Pam returned to time and again. This is episode one, The Black West. Pam Greer's dad grew up in North Carolina. His name was Clarence Ransom Greer. Her mom is Gwendolyn Davis. She grew up on a farm in Cheyenne, Wyoming. She went by Gwen. In 1949, they were living in Denver, Colorado. Gwen was pregnant. My mom was about to give birth, and for some reason at that time, they felt it convenient to go meet my dad's parents in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Clarence and Gwen drove from Denver to North Carolina in two days. They used the Green Book. Its official title at the time was the Negro Motorist Green Book. And at the time, the book was so early, it said Negroes. 
Negroes aren't advised to go there. Negroes get gas here and not there. You know, don't make mistakes and don't get gas after dark. And here are the hotels for African-Americans. A few days after they arrived safely in North Carolina in the early morning of May 26th, a Thursday, Gwen went into labor. Pam was born into a military family, and like most military families, they moved around a lot. One of Pam's earliest memories takes place in Ohio when she was five. It was a hot day. Pam and her mom were taking the bus home after getting groceries. We went from tree to tree to get shade and rest. Then the bus would come and we go out and they wouldn't stop. They'd keep going, so we'd go back to a tree and keep walking. The buses kept passing them, even though there was plenty of room. Finally, an empty bus stopped for them. And he stopped and he opened the door. He opened the door for us. I'll never forget that. Um, I remember when the sound of the door opening and my mom said she was hesitant. If she's seen in the bus, will he get in trouble? Will they get in trouble? Will we get in trouble? And we, she walked with such hesitancy towards this man and he was looking at her. And then as soon as we got close, he just looked ahead as if, okay, the door was open, you got on the bus, I didn't tell you. <laughs> you know, he looked ahead, my mom said, come on, okay. She put, I remember putting the bags up on the stair and she'd climb up and he didn't help get up to help her like he would help other people. And we went to the back. You just don't want any problems. They rode home that day in the back of an empty bus. A year later, Pam's dad was transferred to Lowry Air Force Base in Denver. That's where Gwen's family lived. Denver would become Pam's truest home. I am Charles Lean Terry Nelson. Terry is my middle name, nickname. Terry Nelson works at the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in Denver. She says people are still surprised to hear about black families living in Colorado. We're small but powerful, about 9% of the population here in Colorado. Pam's grandparents lived in East Denver in a one-story home on Vine Street in a neighborhood where most black Denverites lived. The uh, laws actually were put together saying that African-Americans could only inhabit, buy property, and live in this part of the city. These were tight-knit communities in the 1950s. They had black-owned restaurants, barbershops. Everyone looked out for one another. If you were naughty going down the street and somebody's mommy saw you and they said, you shouldn't be doing that, I'm going to tell your mother. By the time you got home, you're in trouble. <laughs> Big trouble. 
Pam spent a lot of time at her grandparents' house. She called her grandmother Marky, short for Marguerite. Her grandfather, Raimundo Paria, was Daddy Ray. They had the most manicured home on their block, and the front yard was Daddy Ray's pride and joy. The whole yard was Daddy Ray's garden. We grew strawberries on this side, and then peas, greens, tomatoes, peppers, carrots, everything. Daddy Ray grew up on a 211-acre farm in Wyoming. It was in his family for generations. He brought Pam and her cousins there on the weekends. He taught Pam how to hunt and fly fish. Daddy Ray wanted Pam to believe she could do anything. It was always the girls had to be self-sufficient, be able to take care of themselves, you know, change the tire, spark plugs, oil in a car, truck, get firewood, save the farm, bring the boat in. You know, he wanted us to do that. But Daddy Ray couldn't prepare Pam for everything, and certainly not for what happened in the summer of 1955. It was shortly after Pam turned six, and it would change her in ways she couldn't possibly understand at the time. We're at my aunt's in the projects. Pam's talking about her mom's sister, Menon. Pam's family lived with her sometimes while Clarence was working on base. Aunt Menon had four children of her own. She lived in public housing in the Five Points neighborhood. And she was working, my mom was working, my dad was away in another airbase, and there was a lot of kids in, in the room, and the older kids watched the younger kids, so there really wasn't any supervision. Three boys from the neighborhood were playing in the house upstairs. They were somewhere between 10 and 12 years old. Pam was alone downstairs, drawing in her coloring book. One of the boys came to the top of the stairs and yelled down to Pam. They said, come up, Pammy, come upstairs. We're having a sock fight. We had sock fights all the time, playing games and stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm running up the stairs. When Pam entered the room, the boys told her to lie down on the bed. They wanted to show her something. I was just lying there because I was told what to do. I was an obedient child, was, you know, and they were at least... I don't know, five or six years older than me. Two of the boys sexually assaulted Pam, while the other held down her arms. It was painful, and I didn't know where that pain was coming from. And I, I remember the striped T-shirts that was on my face. And, and I remember those, I hated those, those kind of shirts that little boys wore all the time. As this was happening, a telephone repairman entered the house. Aunt Menon had scheduled an appointment and forgot to cancel it. The door was unlocked. He must have heard crying or some noise that alarmed him because he came running up the stairs. And um, the telephone repairman came in the room and he was enraged at what they were doing to me. And I thought I was doing something wrong and he was nuts and they were, boys ran out and I was crying. The repairman told Pam to go into the bathroom. She could hear him yell at the boys and kick them out of the house. And then she heard him leave. When Pam saw the boys later that day, 
They threatened her, said if she told anyone, they'd beat her up. But they didn't beat me up or anything like that to tell me not to tell. But they said they promised they would. I, I, I believed them, but I said, okay. It's just All I knew is I felt I had done something wrong when the man came in. Get out of here. What are you kids doing? What do you think, think I caused it or I was a, a part of it? Pam didn't tell her family for years, but they all knew something was wrong. I, it was not my precocious, bright, you know, all over the place, into everything, inquisitive child. I just completely changed. This wasn't the only time Pam was sexually assaulted. It happened two more times in her 20s. She didn't talk about it, for more than two decades. And then she decided to share her story as a way to heal. After that day at her aunt's house, Pam withdrew. She developed a stutter, one she would have off and on for years to come. Daddy Ray worried about Pam. My grandfather kind of took me in his wing to try to help me get through life. He took her up to the family farm in Wyoming more often. Pam's Uncle Daniel lived on the farm, too. He helped take care of the property and the animals, including a very tall horse who Pam called Big Horse. Pam remembers one of those visits especially well. And it's the day that he and my uncle went to a juke joint. It'd be like a bar and it might have a pool table, but buckets of beer and Coca-Cola, Royal RC Cola, not Coca-Cola, but RC. Bottles are different. Chunks of ice for drinking, and they'd play dominoes or bones. The juke joint was right next to the farm. Daddy Ray and Uncle Daniel told Pam to wait in the car while they ran inside. And they opened the door to let me breathe, get air in the car. But Pammy, don't you leave. Don't you just stay there. We'll be right back. And when they left, and it was getting late, and I was like, ah. And then the horse came over to the fence. And I remember getting out and walking over to the horse. It was Big Horse roaming through the pasture. Pam had always been afraid of him, but curious too. When she'd asked if she could ride Big Horse, the answer was always no. I hear Daddy Ray's voice, don't get on that horse, don't go in the fence. Pam climbed the fence and touched the soft spot on Big Horse's muzzle. I got on the top rail and the horse was like, okay. And I pulled his mane, pulled myself on top, and it's just slid on. It was like sliding across a car. It was so huge. And as soon as I pulled up and I was trying to get my other leg around it because I'd seen people ride, he started moving away from the fence. I was on his back, my little skinny legs spread out 
and my braids are flopping and my barrettes are falling out as he started walking away and giving me a tour from his elevation. And there was this connection of, I'm going to take you where I go. I want to show you around. I choose you today. I choose you. We go down to this livestock pond, cottonwood trees around, and he goes to drink water and he falls asleep. And I'm like, I'm trying to get back. So I kind of like lay down, you know, on top of him and look around and see everything, the barrenness of the land. I'm asleep. And next thing I know, Pammy, my grandfather and my uncle have been looking for me. They grab me by the waist and lift me up. Where you been looking for you? We thought you were there. They were so upset that I had lost their child. They ain't coming home. The women gonna kill them. Daddy Ray and Uncle Daniel led Pam and Big Horse back to the farm. And they noticed something. And they realized that my speech had changed, that I wasn't stuttering or stammering. I was different. And from that day on, I realized how important that my grandfather was so proud of what I did. He became like another dad to me. I started talking more, and he started bringing me up every weekend because the city kids didn't want to come. But I wanted to go see Big Horse, That horse saved my life. Coming up on The Plot Thickens, Pam finds her voice. And all the guys thought they were the Falcons. I only have eyes for you. One day when Pam was 13, she came home from school to her parents yelling in their bedroom. Gwen, her mom, had been working as a nurse. Clarence was retired from the Air Force. He couldn't find work, and that put a strain on their relationship. Growing up, we'd see them get just to go out with friends, and they'd be dancing, dressed beautifully. Music is going, finger-popping, gum-chewing, drinking, you know, Jack and Cuddy and stuff dancing, they could boogie-woogie, I mean, serious dancing. Fred Astaire with a beat. And then when he retired, I think what set in was the reality of homemaking. And he'll have to learn skills, because mom's working, she's at the ER room, she's a nurse, and he didn't have enough to do. When Pam walked by the bedroom where they were fighting, she caught a glimpse of her dad packing a suitcase. He left that day and never saw him again. He moved out, got an apartment and a car, and that was it. We're not strange, but I don't know. He just didn't want to be around us. We didn't make plans to do anything, or maybe we'd see him at a funeral. Pam's dad was in the same town, just a couple of miles away, but she never saw him. That feeling of rejection, it would haunt Pam. She learned to push it aside to distract herself. And for Pam, music became the ultimate distraction. 
Denver can sing. Denver can sing. There's one thing that they could do, nothing else they're going to sing. Pam sang in choirs. She took piano lessons. Kids from the neighborhood even sang on street corners. Pam showed us on a tour of Denver. And here, they had street lights. This was a doo-wop corner. And these corners, they would have doo-wop contests. The best singers in the world. A doo-wop corner was a spot where four singers would stand under the street light and harmonize. These quartets would have battles with the quartets across the street. Philip Bailey was in one of them. I'm Philip Bailey from Denver, Colorado. I am the lead singer of the group Earth, Wind & Fire for 50 years now and went to the same high school as Pam Greer. So just to be clear, this is that Philip Bailey, the man responsible for hits like this grew up singing on Pam's neighborhood street corner. His doo-wop group was called the Soul Brothers. <laughs> There's a song goes, In the shadows of the night, doom-doom-doom, I see two loves kissing in the moonlight shadows. And they would harmonize right there and stuff. Two loves. You know, we used to sing all that stuff, man. It was a lot of fun. And in the heat of summer, everyone would sit on their, their benches, their porches and listen to the doo-wop groups. And all the guys out there were the Falcons. I only have eyes for you. And they'd be singing and have these little contests. And then there'd be a Puerto Rican group, and then there'd be a mixed group, and then there'd be the light-skinned group, and there'd be the dark. You thought it was a Spike Lee movie. But <laughs> yeah, everybody singing. But on the street corners, everybody be sitting outside, and like, mm-hmm, okay, we got money on you. What you gonna sing tonight? You know, I was a huge fan of the Impressions, uh, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. So uh, I had a lot of success singing that kind of stuff with Curtis Mayfield and the falsetto and, of course, my falsetto. You must believe me, no matter what the people might say. You Pam didn't sing in the doo-wop battles, but she and Philip Bailey both sang in a youth gospel choir called the Echoes of Youth. Henry and Joanne Ryan started the choir. They lived down the street from Pam. It was very disciplined. These young folks, they would be on their P's and Q's to actually participate in the Echoes of Youth. We made sure wherever we sang, we were clean, our robes pressed, our sashes pressed, hair curled, everything done. Pam sang second soprano. The choir performed at various churches and made money from donations. Mr. Ryan bought the choir burgundy coral robes with yellow sashes. When we walked in, you know, with our robes on, singing, we're crossing over one by one. We're fast approaching life-setting sun. 
Don't, <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna have a voice tomorrow when I'm playing. <laughs> Don't let it happen till our work's undone. We're crossing over one by one. And having 50 children sing a cappella in tune, no pitch pipe, walking like, you know, and every, our choir's getting up, everybody. Go to a white church, they jamming. Because they, their music is like, ah, ah, ah. and Oz is like, hey, we jamming. <laughs> we jamming for our God tonight. <laughs> I played for the church all of my life, so almost 70 years. That's Reverend Hayward Hobbs playing the keyboard. He's the minister of music at the St. Stephen Missionary Baptist Church in Denver. I'm Reverend Hobbs. I'm Hayward. Everybody calls me Uncle Butch. Back in 1965, Reverend Hobbs was the musical director for the Echoes of Youth. He was just a few years older than Pam when they were in the choir together. I happened to have met Pam even before high school. Her mother was a very beautiful woman, and she and my aunt and my mother were very good friends. So I knew her as a, a youngster, and uh, she was a very bright young lady. The Echoes of Youth had made a name for themselves outside of Denver. So much so, the Reverend James Cleveland invited the choir to come to Los Angeles to perform. Cleveland. We were so excited. James Cleveland, James Cleveland, we were, we have arrived. We didn't think we we're gonna go anywhere afterwards, but we have arrived. You know I'm Reverend Cleveland was known as the King of Gospel. Getting invited to perform in his gospel celebration was a big deal. The choir didn't have the money to rent a bus or buy plane tickets, but they were determined to get to Los Angeles one way or another. When the plot thickens returns, Pam and the Echoes of Youth Choir arrive in Los Angeles as the city becomes a war zone. Henry and Joanne Ryan, the couple who founded the Echoes of Youth, had to figure out how to get the choir to Los Angeles. So uh, they kind of moved around and bought an old army bus, ugly dark green bus. <laughs> it was, ooh, it's like, we're gonna have to push today, aren't we? Let, where is he, where's that Lord? He round the corner having a beer. Well, get him out here to push this big ass bus. Finally, on August 8th, 35 teenagers got on that old army bus and headed to James Cleveland's gospel celebration. The Ryans were the chaperones. Philip Bailey, one of the choir's most talented singers, who'd go on to be part of Earth, Wind, and Fire, couldn't go. His mother was a domestic worker. I don't think my mother could afford it. <laughs> I definitely wanted to go, but I was, my mom was a single mom, and uh, we didn't have it like that. 
Reverend Hobbs remembers they left early in the morning and traveled overnight. I do believe I remember we had some bus trouble on the way, but we got that taken care of. It took a day and a half to get to Los Angeles. Their first performance in Compton went well. On the second day, they headed to Watts, a working-class black neighborhood in South Los Angeles. They were scheduled to perform that evening. August 11th, 1965. What they couldn't know was that at seven that night, on the corner of Avalon Boulevard and 116th Street in Watts, years of frustration were coming to a head. Two young Negroes were stopped by California Highway Patrolmen and charged with drunk driving. There was a scuffle and a crowd gathered. Brothers Ronald and Marquette Fry were pulled over by two white police officers for reckless driving. One of them, Marquette Fry, who was 21, failed a sobriety test. As the police questioned the two men, a crowd started to gather around them. The mother of the two, they are brothers, joined in, and she and another woman the crowd thought was pregnant were pushed and shoved. A fight broke out, and a white police officer struck Marquette Fry in the face with his baton. Fry was arrested along with his mother and brother. The crowd grew angrier, and more officers came in for backup. By 7.45, there were more than 1,000 Watts residents gathered around the scene. That green army bus carrying Pam and the Echoes of Youth Choir drove right into the middle of it. When we got over in that area, we saw people on the street fighting. Of course, coming from here, we'd never seen anything like that. So uh, we didn't actually know what was going on until we were in the midst of it. We were on the bus and gunshots were flying across the top of the bus through the windows hitting the, I think some hit the side of the bus and we had to take shelter. The flames today burning quickly, fiercely through a number of buildings. Six buildings were on fire at one time. Police had to force a path through rioters to get fire equipment onto the scene. We had never seen war in our city before. We knew it was serious because there was smoke, cars being turned over streets blocked. The Watts Rebellion spread quickly. The city of Los Angeles was in open revolt. Authorities are increasingly concerned about the number of fires and handguns known to be in the hands of the rioters. We decided to burn this store because we felt this man hadn't been doing nothing but gaming on us anyway. What the young choir members saw that night had been brewing for decades. In 25 years, the population in South L.A. ballooned from 65,000 to more than 300,000. Those living in the mostly black neighborhood of Watts had outdated housing, few grocery stores, and underfunded schools. Police brutality was a part of life. I've tried them all, and I can say to you that there is no question but that under the present machinery, a complaint of police brutality by any Negro citizen goes almost completely unheeded. By the weekend, the city imposed a curfew and set up a blockade. The Echoes of Youth Choir was stuck in L.A. 
A church member from a congregation where they were scheduled to perform took them in. All the kids camped out together in two small apartments. My mother was just frantic when she heard about it. And I was like, I'm okay, everybody's okay, and you know. The Ryans made a plan to get everyone out. This is Philip Bailey. They asked for a police escort to get them back to the freeway, and they were denied. They just said, you have to do it at your own risk. On the way back, it was more subtle than on the way there. On the way there, we were laughing, joking, and carrying on. But uh, by the time we got on the way back home, we were just grateful that we made it through. Nobody got hurt because there were several people that got killed in that riot. The Watts Rebellion lasted six days. 34 people died. More than 1,000 were injured. By 1968, Pam had graduated from high school and finished her first semester at Metropolitan State College in Denver. She wanted to become a doctor. To help pay for school, Pam worked at a record store and as a receptionist at a radio station close to campus. Maybe I could understand the denial of Later that year, on April 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. was in Memphis, Tennessee to support a strike by the city's black sanitation workers. Good evening, Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. Within an hour, Dr. King was dead. That happened at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The nation was shocked. After King's murder, uprisings broke out in cities across the country. Protests were a way of life on college campuses. But Pam was too busy trying to afford college to even think about protesting. Pam's mom worked to support the whole family, so Pam had to pay for her own tuition. One day, as Pam worked at the radio station, one of the DJs had an idea, one that could earn Pam an extra $100. He suggested she compete in the station's beauty pageant. Was that like your first time on a stage? I was terrified, but my mom felt it was good for me because I wasn't speaking as much. She ended up winning the whole thing, including the $100 prize, which went straight into her college fund. Again, Reverend Hobbs. I personally was not really that surprised. She was such a beautiful girl. And by 17, she was glamorous. And I will say, probably a lot of the girls didn't like her. Little teenage jealousies and stuff. But she was very smart, very intelligent young lady. Not long after, Pam was a contestant in another beauty pageant, Miss Colorado Universe, held at a mall in Englewood, Colorado. Pam's family turned out to root her on, including her younger sister, Gina. And I remember seeing her perform, you know, the, the music or the talent section and then the, the response and then the dance and, you know, all that, the swimsuit. And I remember that she was just so beautiful and she, um, she won both of the two side events. 
and that's why I entered the beauty pageant to make money. You're making $500 for winning first runner-up, the formal gown competition, the bathing suit competition, and I won the runner-up. You won both the gown and the bathing, bathing suit, suit, but you were runner-up. Yeah, and it almost started a riot. <laughs> Pam lost the title to a white contestant named Ann Bell, who won an all-expense-paid trip to Miami to compete in the Miss USA pageant. Miss Colorado. Ann Bell Littleton. 51 women, one from each state plus D.C., participated in the Miss USA pageant. Not a single one of them was a woman of color. One of the prizes in 1968 was a movie contract. Turns out Pam didn't need to win a beauty contest for that. David Baumgarten was a talent agent from Hollywood. He saw Pam compete in the Denver pageant. David told Pam there were a lot of opportunities for black actors in Hollywood. It would be the perfect time for her to come to Los Angeles. As she drove home that day, Pam went over the whole idea. It was nonsense, she thought. She wanted to be a doctor, not an actor. But she needed money for school. Movies, she thought, must pay more than working at a radio station. Pam did what she would do so often in her life. She said yes to an opportunity. She would head to Hollywood, not to follow a dream, but to take a chance. There were only so many chances for someone like her, and Pam Greer was not about to let this one go by. On the next episode of The Plot Thickens, Pam moves to Hollywood and ends up in an all-night jam session with some of the most famous rock stars in the world. Next thing you know, there's a big-ass bowl of cocaine that comes out of him somewhere. And Pam falls in love with one of the greatest basketball players in history. And I was watching everyone, and there was this tall person with sunglasses on in a dark club and a cane. And I was like, God, he's tall. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editors are Joanne Farian and Sherry O'KK. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris. Script writing by Yaakov Friedman, Rachel Pilgrim, Angela Carone, and me. Yaakov Friedman is our senior producer. James Sheridan is our researcher and fact checker. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Julie Bitton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, Allison Fire, Phil Richards, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Taryn Jacobs, Carolyn Wigmore, Dexter Fedor, Marcy Sacco, Genevieve McGillicuddy, and Mark Wins, and the entire TCM marketing team. Special thanks to Bruce Shapiro at Columbia University's Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma. Original music in the podcast comes from the band Cadillac Jones. Believe it or not, their bass player is also our lawyer, John Renault. Thanks to John, Kristen Hassel, and Salang Moulton. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. TCM's general manager is Pola Shagnon. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash theplotthickens. 
It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Pam's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash The Plot Thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.